1: Hi, everyone. I'm Rebecca Minkoff, your host for Superwomen. Today's interview is with Patti Sellers, the co founder of Sellers Easton Media. And she spent 30 plus years writing for Fortune and overseeing Fortune's most powerful women. It is an incredible summit that brings together the who's who of women, executives, CEOs, founders, and I've always been so inspired. And today she focuses on telling incredible people's stories, mostly for themselves, which I think is fascinating. So take a listen. I am with the incredible Patty Sellers, who I've had the opportunity to get to know over the course of the years. Um, So thank you for doing this podcast with me. Thank you, Rebecca. (laughs) I was very excited to do this today. I think we're going to have a fun conversation because I know that you're, I love listening to you interview women. And tell stories. I was like, this is going to be a good one. But I'd love to start with the variety of careers that you've had over the last several years, and you've interfaced with some remarkable people. So where did it begin for you?
0: I guess it began in Allentown, Pennsylvania, when I was co-editor of my high school newspaper. Wow. (laughs) (laughs) My parents wanted me to be a lawyer because I asked so many questions. I loved asking questions, and I'm really glad I took the path that I took. In my last year of college, which was at, U- at the University of Virginia, I started a magazine with a friend because I desperately wanted to work for a magazine when I graduated from college, and the job market was really bad. And I was interested in working for New York Magazine or some magazine that covered sort of like culture and a little bit of celebrity, but smart and. I I could not find a job in those areas. And I ended up taking a job with a weekly business newspaper startup in Washington, D.C., and I had zero interest in business. Zero. And you know what I liked about it? I liked writing about people who were smart and who could get something done, could change the world.
1: Totally. And so when you first started out, being that I always talk, you know, I started in the pre-internet age you did too. What was business reporting like back then and how did you approach storytelling then? It
0: was <laughs> you had to be so scrappy and you know, there was no there was no internet. I you just had to be sort of super resourceful. And what quite honestly kind of bummed me out. I I had a fantastic career, three-decade career as a business journalist, but frankly, I came to miss the glory days of being able to do research to a degree that no one else could do, do the definitive story on a person. I tended to write much more about people than issues. So write the defi- so I did like the first solo profile for Fortune magazine of Melinda Gates, the first solo profile she ever agreed to do. I felt doing that story that I would do the definitive story about Melinda Gates and people would see it and people would read it because it was on the cover of Fortune magazine. And today in journalism, one of my great sort of regrets is that there's so much information coming at us that you can't really separate the wheat from the chaff. And you just don't know if somebody is going to see your stuff, your great stuff that you spent months working on. So... I don't know, I don't mean to be an old person longing for the good old days, but <laughs> but there were there were certain wonderful aspects
1: to the early days pre internet. I agree with you i i I was telling a story to a hundred Nordstrom associates this morning of when I started out, I only had to worry about designing two bags a year, and now it's three it's twelve hundred bags a year, so the speed that everything is going is quite crazy
0: and it's hard to make things stand out make your product, whether it's a story or a handbag, special.
1: Right. Right. In a sea of lots. Yeah. But you are a storytelling expert. You've been called a storytelling expert. By you, Rebecca. By me. (laughs) You're the first. I mean, I'm the first. Um, What does storytelling mean to you? First of all everyone has a story. Everyone has a really good
0: story. Most people don't know their own life stories. They don't, they don't understand the narrative of their life because they're inside it. They're living it, okay? I believe everybody has a fascinating story. A great story has a plot. A great story has a beginning, generally a challenge, Generally, fear and trepidation, a challenge overcome, lessons learned from it, wisdom gained, and drama through that. And you come out the other side probably stronger, probably smarter. Those are the stories I like. And one of the reasons that I was excited about coming, besides the fact that I think you're a fantastic person in every way you're you Rebecca are a really good storyteller, and you've used that in building your company to such great advantage and you've used it to kind of develop develop these personal relationships with your customers and that's what you need to do today that's what every brand builder needs to do today tell a story and use that story to develop a really personal relationship because All consumers have the opportunity today to have personalized relationships with their brands.
1: I did not pay you to say that about me, by the way. So you interview people whose stories sometimes will never be shared. Right. And for their own private use or for their family's private use. How do you capture those stories? Um, Is it different when you know you're going to have... You know, hundreds of thousands of people reading it or picking it up on the newsstand. Is there a different approach to telling that story versus someone whose 20 family members will just see it?
0: It is. So after three decades of writing for Fortune magazine and and essentially telling stories for the public market uh, in 2016, a senior Fortune colleague of mine named Nina Easton and I, who you know, Rebecca, uh, we started a company called Sellers Easton Media and what we do at Sellers Easton Media is we tell stories of well-lived lives. To me, a life well-lived is a life of impact. You're not just in it for the money. You're in it to make a difference in the world and a positive difference. So those are the those are our clients. We have corporate clients. We have nonprofit organizations as clients. We also do a lot of personal work. We tell stories for families. A few weeks ago, I was in Silicon Valley, and I'm not going to say who it is. This is a famous Silicon Valley uh, person. I spent three days at, I'll tell you, it's a she, at her home doing what is a, what we call a modern family portrait. And A Modern Family Portrait is a serial storytelling project over the years. So what we're doing is we spent three days at her home with her husband and children, little children. And we interviewed all of them. Yes, I interviewed toddlers. That's amazing. (laughs) And every year we're going to go back with a very high quality camera crew. And every year we're doing a short family film for them. Yeah. So, you know, if you saw the movie boyhood uh, it's, it's kind of similar, but you're, you're with, it's like a modern scrapbook, a modern family album, except it's on video. And those are the stories I love to tell about how people evolve and how people grow. So, That is just for their family. And yeah, you do it differently from what you do for the public. One of the things that I love about this private storytelling is you're not, you're not constrained by advertisers as much as we both,
1: Rebecca, love advertisers, (laughs) advertisers. I love advertisers all the time.
0: (laughs) (laughs) But if you don't have enough advertisers, you don't have enough space whether that's store space or space in a magazine to tell the full story. And I like, having, I like having the opportunity to
1: work for a client directly, to serve that client directly. So when you started out, I'm curious to know, were you, did you ever have the feeling that you were uh, very few as far as women in the industry, in business reporting? And did, did you experience any uh, challenges or anything related to that?
0: Well, I started writing about business in the 80s. I hate to aim age myself, but it was a time when corporate America was composed of the leadership, white men without facial hair. And there was one female Fortune 500 CEO in 1998 when Fortune, when we started Fortune Most Powerful, the Fortune Most Powerful Women list. That that one female Fortune 500 CEO was Jill Barad at Mattel, and she ended up getting ousted. And it's, you know, now we have fewer than 25 female Fortune 500 CEOs, but at least we're at a time when, you know, the CEO of General Motors is... A woman, Mary Barra, and a lot of big companies, important global companies have female, female CEOs. A lot has changed over the years. But I was basically writing about men for the first decade of my writing career, decade plus. And then in 1998, we actually, the top editors at Fortune, I had done a couple of cover stories about women leaders not well-known women at the time, but they, the editors at Fortune said, these women are really interesting. Maybe we should do an annual list. And that's how Fortune, the Fortune Most Powerful Women list came about and the franchise, the conferences that you now come to. And we love having you there. But this has become over 20 years Fortune's
1: biggest franchise, which mm-hmm. is amazing. Wow. And so you and Nina... Co-founded it 20 years ago.
0: Um, Nina was not yet at Fortune. Okay. I co-founded it with a woman named Sue Calloway, who is still a very good friend of mine and is outside of journalism right now. But I was the one who stayed around. And then Nina came along about um, 13 years ago. And she she is still... so. Nina and I have our company, Sellers Easton Media, but when we walked out of the writing part of of Fortune, we no longer write for Fortune. And when we started our company in 2016, they asked us to stay on and continue overseeing the, the Fortune Most Powerful Women events, which we do and which we love. Because to me, it's like to me, it's like a child,
1: a child who is now 20 years old and thriving. Wow. So early on I would love to hear a story about any challenges you faced when launching that.
0: Uh launching Most Powerful Women. I uh, <laughs> I love drama, I love challenges, I love obstacles to overcome, but I got to tell you and there's a lesson here too. It launched with such ease and lack of bureaucracy. And the reason it did is because that first year we decided to put a completely unknown woman. She had never been written about by any major publication. We made her number one. We put her on the cover. Her name was Carly Fiorina. Nobody ever heard of her outside the telecom industry. She was at a company, big telecom company called Lucent's at the time. We put Oprah at number two on the list. And the following summer, Carly Fiorina became the CEO of Hewlett Packard. And that kind of put us on the map. And then we literally were standing in the hallway one day, my friend Sue Calloway, and we said, huh, these women are interesting. We should have an event. And we put together an event, just kind of scrambled it together. And that that was the start of the Fortune Most Powerful Women's Summit. And the lesson here, I think, is that... The more you can start something without a a lot of bureaucracy and business planning, there's nothing wrong with that. I mean, Rebecca, I don't know how you started your business. No bureaucracy and no business planning. Absolutely. We started our company. I I'm sorry to admit, without we don't we never did a business plan. Right. And we're doing pretty darn good. And you're doing fantastic.
1: Yeah, I think sometimes business plans, which are great things to have, can sometimes uh, seem overwhelming. And then you you look at what you have to do to get started. And then you're like, oh, that's, whoa. Right.
0: right. They become the obstacle. And, you know, this listen, some people may listen to the, <laughs> us talking right now and kind of roll their eyes. And they might say, Oh, they got lucky. They had it easy. And, I mean, the challenges come along the way, right? Okay, so now I'm I'm shifting from Fortune Most Powerful. I mean, the challenge for Fortune over the years and Fortune Most Powerful Women is that print journalism collapsed. And little did I know, we know, when we started Fortune Most Powerful Women in 1998 and started these events, which are now six around the world in 1999, We had no idea that print journalism would collapse. Conferences would become a moneymaker for publications. And it turned out to be a really smart thing. We had no idea how smart it would be. So the fact that we started that franchise so naively turned out to be a great advantage. You know, the the huge challenges come along the way when... You know, the company that has a great thing going has other problems. And the choice is, do we do we starve our best asset in order to, you know, save the rest of the company? And very smartly, Fortune magazine never cut back on investing in most powerful women. And that's really smart. So. I don't know, you know, you've probably had over the years sort of parts of your business that are basically losing money and, you know, the 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 sort of gold mine, do you do you tap into the gold mine to, to save the business that's losing
1: money? That's a hard decision, right? It's hard and you have to make those sacrifices sometimes. Yeah. And then sometimes they pay off and then other times they don't. And you learn a lesson. You do. Yeah. So I'm curious to know because uh, we're definitely not where we need to be equality wise with, you know, female CEOs or in executive positions. But I feel like you get to take some credit for what you've done in highlighting all these women. Are you seeing more and more women in places that you've either featured or had at the conference now attain higher levels within corporations? And
0: Not so much lately, Kay. to be honest. Kay. I mean, we just, you know, in the last couple of weeks— PepsiCo announced that Indra Nui is stepping stepping down. Now, Indra has been in the job for 12 years. She became CEO of PepsiCo in 2006. She's had a great run. She deserves to move on, and she's not done yet. I think Indra, I know Indra very well. I think Indra will go from being a very prominent Fortune 500 CEO to, I don't know, but something else prominent. And that's okay. So what we're seeing right now is a flatlining of the number of women in CEO positions at the biggest companies, the Fortune 500 companies. It's basically flatlined over the last few years. And it had gotten above 2020. I mean, we're talking such small numbers. It had gotten above 25 companies within the Fortune 500 have female CEOs. It's now below 25 companies. I thought you were going to say 25%. 25. 25. That's awful. It had reached, it had surpassed 5%. That's terrible. Still terrible. Terrible. But here's my view. And, you know, there's people write ad infinitum about, is it the system? Is it, the women, is it, is it women's faults? That's sort of like Cheryl Sandberg's lean-in argument. You know, it's, it's our responsibility. We need to lean into our careers more. Or is it the system's fault? And is it institutional bias? It's both. It's not one or the other. But the other thing that people, I think, don't pay atten- enough attention to is that women think about power differently from men. We just do. We think about power much more horizontally. Women, men tend to think about power much more vertically. We don't necessarily want the next rung on the, on the ladder. And we think, about, we think about leaving a big company and starting something small and not even wanting it ever, ever to be a Fortune 500 company. We think of that as power and freedom. So a lot of the women f- starting businesses, and I'm curious what, you, what, what your goal is, a lot of the women who are starting businesses, their number one goal is to create the company that they want to work for. Men's number one goal tends to be, I want to make a lot of money. I'm nodding to
1: you right now, mm-hmm. silently, but now I'm admitting that I'm nodding. <laughs>
0: yeah, I mean, you probably, listen, I bet you, this is my bet, this is my guess, you tell me. I bet you want to build a leading and most admired company in the fashion apparel and accessory space uh, and retail space that is a great place to work and uh, is profitable and thriving and how big it ultimately gets, I that maybe I'm wrong is down on your priority list, correct.
1: I want to be a place where women want to work where they feel like they can have if they want families and and be able to pump or you know like at without having to go to a meeting or feel you know this level of comfort. yes, you're totally right. I think I think the big isn't as important as what we stand for, what we do our philanthropic initiatives so. It's interesting you compare what men and want differently because I would I would say that my brother doesn't not want those things, but he wants a big company. That's right. And that's not a bad thing. That's just what he, you know, he, how he feels. Right. And right. That a lot of men that I meet feel that way too. Yeah.
0: I forgot. I mean, I think of, you know, he, your brother, Yuri, right, mm-hmm. is extremely important in the mix of— Hugely um, important. A hugely important. He's the CEO, right? Yeah. Uh, but, you know, I so associate— I've never met him, Rebecca, and I'm. he seems like a fantastic guy from what I hear and what I read. But I so identify your company, Rebecca Minkoff, with you. So I think of you as kind of calling the shots, but I realize it's not just
1: you. <laughs> it's me and the bro. Yep. So what do you think we can do, being that you understand this so well and you've, you've gotten to know so many of these Fortune 500 women, what can we do to change what we're doing?
0: Well, I mean, it's one of the reasons that I decided to stay with Fortune and continue to have this significant role with with the most powerful women events because you can't be it if you can't see it, right? And we need role models that out there, and the most powerful women summits and events are not only business women, but women leaders in philanthropy, government, culture, um, sports, And we gather these women and, you know, you can, you don't come to these events, which are invitation only and only for top leaders, you can watch, watch everything on online. And I think that, you know, that's what we need to do. The more we can get these drives me crazy. The, you know, there are some women leaders who just want nothing to do with putting themselves out there or being role models. And I one of the reasons I admire someone like well Indra, Indra Nui and Mary Barra, who you Who's know Mary wa- Barra. Mary from. Barra is the CEO of General Motors. And she walked into a horrible situation where GM was in crisis mode and she's the daughter of a GM factory worker who grew up in Detroit and, you know, kind of just rose through the system, worked at GM her entire career and is now CEO. And she is a fantastic CEO and she puts herself out there. She puts herself out there as a role model and she puts herself out there also on Issues around diversity, inclusion, kind of civil rights, and she—the most important, like I think the best thing that you can do, that we can do, is think of our power as more than our platform. Think of think of our if if our platform is if you're you know the the co the the found co-founder right you're a brand Rebecca and you represent. Uh, a retail franchise, and a a line of of products and a brand that is out there globally. And I'm a storyteller. And if we can use our platforms to do more than just tell stories, me for private clients and me on the stage of, of Fortune events, and you can use your platform to do more than sell your stuff, that is real power. That is real power. And, you know, if we would lose our jobs tomorrow and we would ask ourselves, am I still powerful? If you can say yes to that, I mean, you're a mother, you're a, you have so much power outside of your brand because you've extended your brand into the philanthropy space. And even if you left your company tomorrow, you would still have extraordinary power. And that's how we have to think about our lives.
1: I love that. That's awesome. That's good advice. I was going to ask you what advice you have for women, but I'm going to take that one. So what does the word success mean to you? And what is a successful life look like for you? Success to me is a life of impact,
0: a life of positive impact. It's not about money. It's not about position. It's not about stature it's using what we have to do more and do the unexpected and to do to do things beyond
1: what you're expected to do and that's how you stand out love it i realize that you don't have a typical day in the life so can you give me a typical week or typical examples of maybe things that are repetitive within your life that you do
0: hmm that's interesting Like I don't have a typical day, right? I don't have, I don't really have a typical day. I'll tell you, I spent my entire career um, going to an office and I work at home now. I work at home and I love it. And I had a thing when I, when my job was writing for Fortune and overseeing Most Powerful Women for Fortune. I had a thing where I wanted to do all my work at the office and my home was for home stuff. I didn't work at home. And when we started this company in 2016, I completely shifted gears. I now work at home and I'm so shocked that I, that I like that. And, you know, I, I was a little worried about, you know, kind of be, uh, first of all, like, the productivity issue is, like, I have to stop myself. I mean, I have to control myself from working too hard. I mean, I have no problem being self-motivated. But I never imagined that after a full career going to an office that I would change my life and find joy out of, you know, getting up and making my own you know, sort of charting my own course every day. There is no typical, you know, I just spent, I just spent a whole week in Silicon Valley. And one of the things was doing that project. And that is pure joy to me. But a lot of days are sitting in my apartment and doing proposals and writing stuff for clients, you know, so it, It just
1: varies. I love how varied it is. Yeah. That's what I love about my job now is it's very varied and it keeps it interesting. Mm -hmm. Totally keeps it interesting. So one thing I like to ask every guest is something we'd be surprised to know about them. Um, I'll share with you that, I don't think you know this, but when I spoke... We met originally after I spoke for Accenture International Women's Day. I remember. And I saw your name as being on the list of people in the room. And I was like, if I could just get a moment with her, I've been admiring her for so long. And I it manifested because then you reached out to me or, or to Julie and said you wanted to meet me. And I was like, it, it actually happened. Something I actually wished for, because I don't really believe in wishing, actually happened. So that's my... That's so interesting. You've just changed my answer. But my
0: answer relates to the answer I was going to give. So uh, that's so fascinating because I remember looking at at that Accenture conference, I remember looking at who was going to be on stage and I was like, oh, Rebecca Minkoff <laughs> is going to be there. Oh, I hope I get to meet her. And I was intentionally in the green room at that time so I could meet you. Wow. So...
1: Who knew? So we were both fangirling each yeah, other. Yeah, we
0: were fangirling each other. <laughs> and what I, w- what I was going to say, I guess, in response to your question was that, first of all, there's a glamour to what you do and there's a glamour to what I do, which is not really the truth, right? Like, we're like, you know, we... It looks glamorous. It looks glamorous. It's it's incredibly hard work. I mean, I I am a totally ordinary girl from Allentown, Pennsylvania, who never lost that my allentown roots and i never want to i never want to i feel like i feel like you should never lose your roots because it enables you to talk to pretty much anyone and what and this now i'm now i'm shifting to what you just told me what constantly amazes me is i don't think i'm famous. I don't think I'm well known. And when I hear people say, like you just said, like, oh, I hope I can meet Patty Sellers. Like, I remember like, the I remember the first time I met Maureen Dowd, the New York Times columnist, the famous, great New York Times columnist, I don't know, maybe like 10 years ago. She said, oh, I'm a big fan of yours. I'm like, what? What? <laughs> like, I don't think these people I admire know who I am. And as long as you can keep that, that, that keeps you grounded. You should never assume that people are impressed with you or think favorably of you. You have to earn that. Agreed. Stay humble. Mm-hmm.
1: Are there any last words of advice you've given me and our listeners incredible advice throughout this podcast, but are there? Is there anything you want to end with?
0: Um, I would just say real power is the power you have beyond your official platform and your official tenure. It's doing the unexpected
1: beyond what you're expected to do. Love it. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Patty Sellers. Thank you, Rebecca. That was Patty Sellers, the co-founder and partner of Sellers Easton Media. You can find more about her on LinkedIn at Patty Sellers. P-A-T-T-I-E-S-E-L-L-E-R-S. Thanks for listening.